certain parts of the world which used to have what we consider the most established and most consolidated democracies, there has been a decline. Here you have an illiberal statesman, somebody who is basically abolishing democracy, who is not only open about what he's doing, but is in fact formulating it in something like theoretical terms. Welcome to Gagarin, the Eurozine podcast where we discuss culture, politics and research from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine drawing on our network of more than 100 cultural journals. At Eurozine.com, you'll find a selection of outstanding articles from our partner publications, translated from dozens of languages, complemented by high-quality original content. Instead of creating a filter bubble, Eurozine functions as a sampling membrane, offering you a glimpse into what's on Europe's greatest minds. I am Editor-in-Chief Reiko Kingapop, and today I'm talking with a returning champion among Eurozine's authors, and this is his second time on a podcast. Please welcome Ferenc Lotso a fellow Hungarian intellectual explaining our country's odd ways on an international stage. But he does so much more than that. He is a historian at Maastricht University and a prolific writer. He is also a founding editor of one of Eurozine's newest partner journals, The Review of Democracy. This podcast episode also has bonus material available only to our patrons, in which we discuss integrating ecology with mainstream political theory, and whether democracy even has the executive potential to manage civilizational crises as climate change. Sometimes you can become a patron by pledging as little as five euros a month or more for even more giveaways and exclusive content on patreon.com slash Thank you, and let's get into it. Hi, Ferenc, and very, very welcome back onto the podcast. Hello, Rika. Thanks so much for inviting me. Indeed, it's always a pleasure. We've talked before. We were joined then by your co-editor, Luca Lisev Gabrielcic, with whom you edited a Eurozine volume published by CEU Press called The Legacy of Division. If somebody's interested, they can find this series, gigantic series, I should add, of articles in Eurozine under the same titled Focal Point, The Legacy of Division. And they can also order the book, but we're not going to be talking about that. Although, of course, obviously, the topics of that project will probably surface in this conversation because that was focused on the 30 years since Dibenda, since the collapse of the Soviet regime and the colloquial fall of the Berlin Wall. But today we're talking about democide, how democracies die. What a nice topic, right? Yes, I should say that I've written about this subject in response to uh, John Keane's excellent essay, which he has contributed to Eurozine and uh, Public Seminar. And he has proposed a new concept of democide, where he suggests that we should be looking at the different rhythms, the different speeds with which democracies may die. And I was arguing with him, trying to suggest that Historians try to explore at different layers of time at once. And in fact, what's really interesting is that these different layers of time are really intertwined. So if we want to understand the end or the murder of various democracies in history and in the present day, we need to realize that you know the short-term and the much longer-term processes are intertwined and where the real discussion and debate should be taking place is how these things are interrelated, right? Whether politicians, when they are trying to abolish a democracy, whether that's the decisive moment 
or whether a longer-term process has been unfolding through which the foundations of democracy have already been emptied. And what I will strike to suggest is that in most of the famous cases we are aware of, in fact, both have been really present. And what historians have typically been arguing is whether the political process, so to say the top-down process, or the social historical embeddedness of democracy, whether one or the other is more crucial to understand this. Indeed, John Keane not only read your article, but actually was very happy with this. In our previous conversation on Gogarin, he says this out loud for people to hear. So he said thanks for your response and for the illuminating examples. You use, first of all, the example of the Weimar Republic, which is, as you state, the most studied, most extensively studied case of democide, that is a democracy withering and dying. And both you and John Keane, with different approaches, argue that the, so to say, myth of sudden death of democracy is sort of problematic. You here argue that the factors in the Weimar Republic's collapse and descent are dual. You say that there is a sudden death element, but there's also a more gradual degradation. Can you tell us about this, please? How can you both die suddenly and wither at the same time? That's exactly what I was trying to suggest. You know, I think we're all aware of this very famous moment when the Enabling Act is introduced in early 1933 as Hitler is appointed chancellor. Uh, they very quickly uh, tried to abolish the remaining features of Germany's first experiment with the democracy, that is the Weimar Republic's decade and a half. What I'm trying to say is that, of course, the Nazis do not come to power in a moment where there is a well-functioning liberal democracy in place. In fact, already the last years of the Weimar Republic are in many ways uh, pointing in an authoritarian direction. There is also a very grave social crisis. There is a great amount of political violence throughout the period of the Weimar Republic. There is obviously the traumatization and the humiliation, as many Germans understand it, that was the first world war that the German Empire lost. There is a grave economic crisis, uh, partly due to hyperinflation in the 1920s, and that is also made much worse by the so-called Great Depression, starting in 1929, which, as we know, starts across the Atlantic. But of course, the Atlantic, the two sides of the ocean, are in many ways intertwined in their histories. And Germany is one of the countries that happens to suffer the most through unemployment, through the decline of people from middle class positions and sort of the fear that they have in connection with that. So all those things are, I think, are very important preconditions for why somebody like Adolf Hitler is able to abolish democracy and is able to promise something like a non-democratic but for certain people, more inclusive regime, because that's, of course, the promise of the Nazi regime, which is a racist, very violent, very exclusivist regime. But it makes this claim to be establishing something like a Volksgemeinschaft, right? That's a key propaganda slogan of the times, propagated by the Nazis themselves, that they are basically establishing kind of more horizontal, more equitable community for those Germans who belong to it, right? And that's, of course, where the where the very controversial aspect can immediately be detected, that they define many citizens of Germany as not belonging to that community, right? So it's a very autocratic and very inorganic, vicious regime. 
But there is this claim that they make, and this is again what John Keane, I guess, would call a kind of phantom democratic system, right? Many of these regimes in modern times that are anti-democratic are actually claiming to be ruling in the name of more democracy, right? They don't say that we are anti-democratic, rather they say that we are doing away with liberalism, which is not inclusive enough. The liberal system has, so to say, failed us, and we are trying to establish something that will be more democratic, right? And of course, we know that this is a sham, and we know that in the case of Nazism, this is, of course, very much the opposite of what is actually happening. But still, I think it's important to realize that there is that kind of promise that they make to those who believe in that. Indeed, however, when you list all of these overlapping crises, which enabled the very quick degradation of a then very young democracy, talking still about the Weimar Republic, that really sounds very familiar. I mean, of course, crises have a tendency to overlap over each other. They don't usually happen in a vacuum. They aren't really sealed from each other. However, in this current moment, social catastrophe, outstanding inflation, I wouldn't yet call it hyperinflation, but exceptional inflation, huge economic recession, somewhat weirdly, slightly unforeseen, at least by governments. I have to say that I'm not at all surprised, although I'm not an economist, but I'm not at all surprised about this recession after a global health emergency that was never like fully and sufficiently dealt with, let alone truly processed politically and culturally and socially. So there's a lot, is all I'm saying. And then the ecological collapse comes on top. And then there's like a rapid capitalist digitalization, you know, threats here and there. So how worried should an average democracy enthusiast be for... Let's just stick to Europe because that's our stomping ground. We're both Hungarians. We'll talk about Hungary after this. But, you know, when we're talking about democracy enthusiasts, that can contain quite a number of Hungarians. But the Hungarian case right now is something quite different. So let's just talk in general about now functioning European democracies. What is the level of worry that you endorse? I would say you know, a lot depends on how we define a democracy. I think one thing that many people would agree is that there is a decline in the quality of democracy, even in countries where democracies have been established for a long time and where the institutional features seem to be present. There's a kind of hollowing out process, right? This has a lot to do with the decline of industrial society, right? the end of a certain form of modernity that goes hand in hand with the decline of political parties, with the decline also of political participation, with the changing media landscape, with the changing public sphere. I would also argue that the decline and withdrawal of workers' representation across the board is probably a huge factor in terms of democratic participation too. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely, right? I mean, this has also to do with what one might call a neoliberal turn, right? The switch from welfare regimes of the early post-war decades to a more kind of market-based privatizing states, because these are actually policies that are introduced and enforced by states. One should say right now, liberalism is not the market acting on its own, but rather political entrepreneurs uh, turning uh, systems in this direction, which again leads to a lot of layers of society 
ending up worse off than before, certainly in relative terms, sometimes in absolute terms. I should say all of that is embedded in a global transformation, right? The middle class globally have been growing. The increase is actually stunning. It's certainly in the hundreds of millions. But then for certain parts of the world, which used to have what we consider the most established and most consolidated democracies, there has been a decline. Again, it's, I think it's a difficult question how to read that globally, right? Just because the US, I think, is doing worse than before, that doesn't mean that this is what's happening globally. That's, I think, important to realize, even though the US is, of course, a great model for a certain type of democracy, which I think had always had its massive problems. Well, it's also a great exporter of anti-democratic techniques. We can talk about that maybe later. Yes. Specifically in terms of you know, the terminology of democracy export should be joined by a comparable terminology for the type of abuse of electoral systems, abuse of media systems, etc., which oftentimes are directly exported through like shared advisors and just, you know, genuinely political learning from each other that is also very much rooted in the US, not only there, but strongly there too. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think there's certainly a big discussion to be had about the Republican Party in particular, right? Their role in the democratization within the U.S. Also, U.S. foreign policy, as we know, has been much less pro-democracy than some of its apologists would like to pretend. What I would like to also add is that, you know, one thing I emphasize in the essay, the response to John Keane, is that the concept of democide might be quite imprecise in the sense that what follows at the end of liberal democratic regimes it may actually be a whole variety of things. And that's also why I use uh, these two examples, right? The end of the Weimar Republic and the end of post-communist democracy in Hungary, right? Hungary is, of course, often seen as, so to say, the poster child of uh, de-democratization, if you may call it like that, right? The country which uh, had relatively high levels of democracy in the early 21st century, and it fell very conspicuously for numerous years by now. And that is, I think, the important realization here that the outcome of these processes are, of course, very, very different, right? I mean, one would be, I think, very mistaken to compare what is going on in Hungary today with, with what happened in Nazi Germany, right? So it's not actually in the way that democracies ended where those different speeds, those different processes were intertwined in both cases. And you can point to, I think, all relevant examples that John Keane, I think, rightly raises in his essay. But then it's very important to realize that what follows, so to say, what follows death in this case, right, the afterlife, is actually significantly different. The one was an expansionist, uh, genocidal dictatorship. The other is, I would say, a corrupt, fake democracy where, you know, the public sphere has been hollowed out in many ways. But also it's a regime that is trying to play several ball games at the same time, if you wish, right? They are, while saying that they are no longer following the Western liberal script, they are also trying to stay within the European Union, where you're expected to be following that script and trying to do both at the same time. Of course, I think ever less successfully, I think this kind of self-contradiction cannot be upheld forever, but they've been doing that, I think, for quite a while. And, and again, for a number of years, this self-contradiction didn't really cause any harm to those who were, were building up this regime. So I think that's very important. Now, the other factor, which I think is what is on everybody's mind these days, 
You know, when you look back at interwar Germany and the death of democracy there, I think it's undeniable that physical violence was an absolutely crucial aspect of the story. And that had to do with the brutalization of politics that followed the First World War, right? Historians tend to talk about this as the failure to de-radicalize, right? That is the big discussion, and that's, I think, a very interesting one. Why de-radicalization could succeed after the Second World War, but not after the First, right? In fact, the First World War, in a way, triggered the rise of what we might call totalitarian movements, fascism and communism, right? All those new types of regimes arose not only in the aftermath of the First World War, but were often carried by people who experienced that war, often as front soldiers, right? That is, of course, what was very different today, right? If you look at the decline and death of democracy in our own age, certainly in Europe, until the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which brought the question and the problem of violence back uh, into the center of our attention, there was, of course, relatively little of that, right? So Hungarian democracy, in fact, died a bloodless death, right? Nobody was actually really murdered who was a Hungarian citizen in order to abolish that. And that's indeed the big question, I think, and the big uncomfortable question, in fact, that we need to pose. Why was there less resistance to this if the repression wasn't so severe, right? How come that this bloodless way of emptying a democracy out of its basic features could be pursued and people weren't fighting back more if there was actually not the direct threat of using force that much. Whether the regime would have done it had there been more resistance, that's another question. But the empirical fact is that there was relatively little and still people seem to have accepted a lot of it in the end. So that's, I think, again, the uncomfortable question friends and supporters of democracy need and need to ask. I think there are couple of important distinctions to make here and one of them und uns gesagt for two Hungarians I think it can be admitted that the Hungarian society has conventionally been an incredibly depoliticized and very very passively or politically passive community so much so that even the most successful movement of political resistance was passive resistance in Hungarian history. Resistance towards back then the Habsburg rule. We're talking about the 19th century. But this is just one part of a political puzzle, but I think a very important part that a community's political culture or culture of self-advocacy, their culture of realizing their interests or trying to enforce their interests is very, very influential. It might sound kind of silly because mm, culture, that's this uh, untangible sort of opaque thing, but this is very strongly defining how people react. And I would just like to point out one single example. Now, after 13 years of a long march towards a very thorough collapse during the pandemic, and then having fallen off the cliff and broken every bone in the body of public education in Hungary, which is... It's not going towards a collapse. It has happened, and it has happened a long time ago. This is the time when teachers' resistance, who have all along been accompanied by parents and now also school children, we're talking about public education, so one, one through 12 classes, 
or school years, elementary and high school, this is the time when there is effective resistance surfacing, even though this crisis has been going on. And in neighboring Romania, which has a completely different political culture, especially in terms of their, say, track record of mobilization and especially resistance, we're talking about democratic Romania right now. Of course, there can be longer comparisons, but this is a very important thing to emphasize. A teacher strike reached in three weeks their currently stated goals. And I personally really think, and many point out, that the major difference between the two systems is that when Romanian teachers faced um, undue cuts, didn't get um, salary rises, etc., they immediately reacted. Whereas the Hungarian teachers' organizations, including unions, which are their problematic part there, have been postponing this through procrastinating actual resistance, and we still haven't had a proper strike in Hungary. With all sorts of excuses, of course, you know, truth of the matter is that a strike proper is illegal currently in Hungary. It took 12 years for it to be illegal, so it would have been possible all along. I really would put this down to sort of a negotiating strategy. And the reason I talk about this so long is, first of all, because I talk a lot, but more importantly, is because I think that the Hungarian example is very interesting. It's relevant, but it may not be as obviously exportable or extrapolated to any other circumstance. There are easier victims, so to say, than others. And in this sense, Hungary may have been an easier victim. What do you think about this? Is this just fantasy? No, I think you're, you're very much up to something there. I would say that one thing that is often underemphasized is that before 2010, the Hungarian political system was very polarized, but it was also very closed, right? It was a very static, very stable looking system in the sense that hardly any new parties ever made it into parliament. In fact, in those 20 years, you had a far right party that passed the 5% threshold in 1998. But other than that, Basically, the political elite was more or less, uh, so to say, written in stone, you know, who were the people, who were the, which were the networks, which were the parties. And when, when Orban and his coterie started to, I think, very gradually and very methodically abolish what was the democratic system, there was immediately a great politicization of what that meant. I remember, and this I also mentioned in the essay in a more implicit way, perhaps, and I, and I can I can elaborate on that briefly. You know, I think what happened there was that there was an oppositional narrative that democracy was ending and that this was being abolished and that there were examples which you could kind of link to each other and that this added up to a coherent narrative to a kind of intended murder of democracy. And I remember in the early 2010s, you know, so to say, the incoming regime was constantly saying, this is a malevolent, heavily politicized misrepresentation of what is going on. We are not actually doing that. These are random examples that they pick in order to create a kind of political narrative. And this is what I mentioned in the essay, right? That in that moment, I think it was quite difficult for a lot of people to judge what was going on. Was the opposition right in claiming that all these things like, you know, a new electoral law, a new constitution, a changing role for the constitutional court and so on, all of that amounted to a methodical attempt 
to really hollow out democracy and centralize power? Or was it rather so that Fidesz was doing a number of things that should have been done anyway and that it seemed like a package for those who opposed? And of course, I think by 2014, which is again the big moment that everybody still, I think, quotes, when Orban in many ways admitted that he was in fact building an illiberal state, right? That's, of course, the speech that he's most famous for in, in global history. You may say in the whole study of illiberal rule, this is seen as a major moment, not least because here you have an illiberal statesman, somebody who's basically abolishing democracy, who is not only open about what he's doing, but is in fact formulating it in something like theoretical terms, right? Most uh, strongmen, most authoritarian rulers are not exactly well-versed uh, in political thought, and they wouldn't be articulating their vision in this kind of grandiose fashion. But Orban, who actually comes from something like an intellectual milieu, right? He's, it's, not, it's not that his, his family background is that, but he was, you know, a young social scientist. He was a part of the oppositional dissident groups of the 1980s, which were basically intellectual groups. And he has an ambition to explain world history and to explain his own politics in world historical terms. Now, of course, this is very immodest on his part. In many ways, right, he's the, he's the leader of a small country. But that is what he's doing. And I think that's the moment which I think John Keane would identify with, you know, this kind of quick moment of the end of democracy where more or less everybody can agree there is a regime change going on. And, right, and here I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense because what I think we were lacking in Hungary in the early 2010s is a clear awareness of what the stages are through which democracies can be abolished. And I think those who were doing it, they were aware, right, that you need to basically do one thing after the other and have this kind of accumulative uh, experience of, you know, taking away, uh, first of all, you know, these guarantees, uh, changing the electoral law, having a new constitution. And so, you know, all these things were part of a package. And I think they were doing it very methodically as if there was something like a blueprint, something like a script, right? And I think they succeeded in a way more because people in Hungary were on the one hand depoliticized, as you mentioned, on the other hand, the question whether there still was democracy in the country was politicized. And I remember even just a few years ago, you know, when you looked at opinion polls, it was very clear to see that those who supported the opposition parties thought that Hungary was not really democratic anymore, but those who supported the government claimed that they were living in a democracy, right? And this is very, very important to understand, right? I think there is a weird glitch in terms of how Hungarian publicity processes these events that you mentioned, because the package deal, not by 2014, but by 2012, was clear as day. I believe it was by the end of 2012 or maybe 2013, when Fides, in a wink of an eye, with no consultation and no social involvement whatsoever, changed the constitution which is a very aggressive move anyway, and completely replaced the existing constitution with a base law that since then infamous Yusuf Sayed even bragged about having just written on his iPad on the way back from Brussels. These are very weird statements, but it does signal the approach to the gravitas of the job. I mean, you work in places. That's not the problem I have with this statement, but you know, there is a banality 
to writing something, but the banality of coming up with the code that is going to define the entirety of basically state systems within, talking to no one, consulting with no one, no external considerations, no social involvement, sort of introducing it as a surprise, I think in and of itself was enough of an obvious shock and the first mass protests started there. However, they were much bigger than any similar political protests before on the democratic side, but they were very much struggling to expand beyond their initial numbers. And within very, very quick succession, the electoral system was overturned, partly by this base law in itself and tailored specifically to favor the biggest winner. So this was basically to secure that Fidesz keep winning the supermajority. And the media regulations were overturned. And these three major systems basically define all the political machinery of the country. And yet, somehow, the discourse wasn't really clear. I think at least that's what I recall. So even among the then majority of the media sphere, there was a reluctance sort of to call a spade a spade, really. There was a deep disdain for many activists and protesters. There was a culture of looking down on quote-unquote troublemakers, which is something we inherit from way back. So when we talk about the glorious historical events or the historical events glorified in the Hungarian discourse, for instance, the revolution of 1956, which was in fact a very heroic moment, many of those that we would then go on to call the 56ers lived their lives as pariah afterwards, even if they weren't executed and could come out of prison or weren't in prison because they were in their communities considered troublemakers who are making this trouble for no good reason. So I think there is this longer aspect to to not really embracing those who want change or not really embracing those who just don't avoid conflict. And this is not really the case with Romania, for instance. It's completely different. Yes, I'll try to respond to two points which I think are really important. You know, when they introduced the electoral law, which I think we know now was probably the single most important, the single most consequential change, I remember there was a quite a wide expert consensus that the electoral law in Hungary deserves to be changed. The parliament had nearly 400 representatives, which was too many somehow. The electoral system was very complex with multiple rounds, uh, redistribution. And as you mentioned, it really really stop new parties from entering the seat. You are right. Yes. And, you know, it was almost difficult to find a person who fully understood how the mandates were distributed in the end. It was a very complex system. And when Fidesz said, I remember this very clearly, that this needs to be simplified, a new structure needs to be used, which will make the parliament smaller and, you know, more directly representative also of the individual constituencies and so on. Many critics of the new law said that they are twisting everything in order to make it easier for themselves to keep on winning. And I remember that the Fidesz official propaganda at the time was that this is not at all true. They were basically saying that this is a political critique. What we're doing is a very expert-based, neutral kind of new electoral law. 
Now we know, based on the evidence, which are the elections that came subsequently, that the criticism was valid. That, in fact, the new electoral law makes it much easier for the incumbent to get re-elected and, in fact, to get re-elected with a large majority. But, you know, how proportionate or disproportionate the law was in a European context was difficult for the Hungarian public to know because, you know, Hungary had one of the most representative systems and it went to the one of the least representative systems, right, in the, let's say, in the EU of not 27 member states. And there was a massive change. But of course, Fidesz could easily argue, and that was the argument repeatedly winged at the time, that indeed what they're doing belongs to the European spectrum, right? It's not more extreme than some countries in the EU have, right? And of course, it took us a while, I think, to understand that, of course, if you combine some of the least democratic, some of the most restrictive laws from all over the EU, you end up with a new kind of whole, right? It's not in the individual pieces that the problem lies, but the fact that you're combining them in a certain way. Now, the second point I wanted to briefly uh, make is that you're absolutely right. I think what was missing in Hungary, and that's again very much in line with what John Keane argues, is that the spirit of democracy was very, very weak. Right after 1989, to give you perhaps the most striking example for me personally, there was no political education to be had. When I moved to Germany, I was very fascinated by the investment in what they call politische Bildung, right? Political education. The concept didn't even really exist in our youth. And it didn't really exist, I think, because everything that was called political education would have sounded like propaganda and agitation, right? So having thrown out, so to say, the, uh, the Soviet or communist ideas, we have also removed something which is actually very fundamental to liberal democracy, which is that there's a basic consensus on values and that people are aware of the basic political parameters of their lives, right? So this depoliticization was actually the way that democracy was introduced. And I think social scientists have a lot to say on that question because what this has to do with is that democracy was introduced simultaneously with capitalism and with Europeanization and both the introduction of the market economy and the desire to join the European Union meant that many of the basic questions of political life could no longer be debated. Could no longer be debated because the answers were already given, right? So we actually introduced a kind of a political system where very little could be done politically. I'm very serious when I say that I think Fidesz emerged out of this frustration, right? When you read Orban's biographies, for instance, he was very frustrated to realize that the head of the National Bank perhaps could have more power than he as the elected prime minister of the country, right? After 1998, this was for him a bit of a shock. And he came up with this idea that every important decision has to be a political decision and he has to be the one to make it in the end, right? Of course, this is a very autocratic idea and I think we know where we ended up with it. But I think, you know, this was Fidesz's big project to say that politics matters. It's not only about policy, it's not only about the details, but it's about the big questions where you can really make a difference and really reshape things, right? And I think for their own electorate, this was a very, very popular idea in the in So perversely, what Fidesz introduced and what many conservatives across the world are introducing, but especially in this form that is now prevalent in Hungary, they have basically realized the Lukacian fever dream, which actually 
George Lukács himself was confronted by when his theory became sort of official dogma of the Soviet Union, his theory about how every sphere of life is political and every type of inquiry should be political inquiry. I'm dumbing it down, but that's sort of at the core of this theory. And then Lukács then in the 50s himself faced his own theory in Soviet practice that restricted him from exercising a by then way more liberal and sort of more, I would even say hedonistic type of philosophy. So then they started to call it aesthetics because he back then stated that the field of aesthetics and semantics and some others, maybe they are not supposed to be subject of political inquiry. It doesn't really say that it's sort of arbitrary, but that's kind of at the core of it. Now, anyway, so this is the fever dream of politicizing every possible sphere of life. And this is what we're seeing now, both with U.S. Republicans, just to be clear, and with this whole Kulturkampf, culture wars approach across the board, this is what is happening in, in Hungary right now, every day, every sphere, from public institutions to private conversations to where you sit down and get your drinks, everything is politically charged. Interestingly, this is the country where criticizing Fidesz's grab of the constitution was called out and the government, as you just said, said this is just a political criticism. So political, and I think this is very important here, political was a damning word. Political criticism was not a valid criticism in their minds or in this rhetoric and it worked. That's the interesting part, that it actually did work with this population because they did consider politics somehow dirty and something to avoid and something to not get mixed up with, probably specifically building on this Soviet legacy. And now we are on a completely different note with society. Everything is politicized. However, the regime's own stance on his choices is that those are neutral. Those are the neutral, quote unquote, natural choices, promoting, you know, the natural family or the, you know, the traditional family, promoting real Hungarianness, whatever that means, these sorts of things. They still don't talk about their own completely pervasive politics as politics. Yes, this is indeed true. There are two big questions. One is, that a certain type of conservatism is very authoritarian. And I think here the point is that whatever they are doing and they're presenting as natural and any alternative as deviant, it means that they are sort of from the very beginning trying to delegitimize uh, criticism. Whatever you may say against it, you're either not following the path of nature or you're not belonging to the national community or, or what have you, right? So basically they're merging discourse on conservative values with a very authoritarian conception of politics. And I think that's quite clear to see. This is, I think, what makes them in the end a far-right kind of force by now. And I think they would be ready to accept that, in fact, if you look at some of the most lavishly funded propaganda, international propaganda ventures of this regime, such as the European Conservative, right, which is a journal they publish, it's almost entirely devoted to building an alliance of far-right forces in Europe, they interview politicians and intellectuals belonging to this milieu 
and they don't really talk, for instance, center-right people or, or moderate conservatives, pro-democratic, pro-liberal democratic conservatives anymore. But then there is, I think, also another aspect which is very, very interesting, which is that this type of regime is part of an international system that has emerged gradually, which we now call the European Union, which is all about depoliticization, right? The European Union is also a project which in a different way says that we should be thinking about policy, we should be thinking about rational compromises, we should be creating an inclusive society, not through political contestation, but through legal agreements, through you know, reconciliation, and so on and so forth. And what I find extremely interesting is how difficult this European Union had it with Orban, because they were in a way expecting his regime to be more reasonable than I think it has turned out to be, right? For years and years, there was an expectation that this hyper-politicization of everything at some point stopped, and they will want to you know, remain on relatively good terms with the EU. And I think that has turned out to be a mistaken expectation. I think this hyper-politicization is a self-reinforcing logic, and it has a kind of radicalizing logic, right? Once you pick a fight with the EU, you have to keep on fighting them, because basically that's how you have established a kind of symbolic framing of what is going on, right? So if the EU criticizes Orban, that's only because they are malevolent towards him in his own depiction, right? So he has to basically keep on denouncing it as unfair and as not factually based and so on and so forth. And I think that's what we've been seeing. And in this respect, I think his regime has gone a lot further than people have expected. And this is, I think, the big debate at the moment, right? Where the country is going in terms of its foreign policy choices, right? This, of course, has a lot to do with uh, all the uh, really controversial uh, connections uh, to Russia. But it also has, I think, in a very serious way, led to a crisis with the European Union, where they are, formally speaking, members but in many, many ways, they have been marginalized to the extent that they are not really participating in European processes as equals anymore, right? And here, I think one thing they have... Even in formal ways. Yes. Even in formal ways, denying the EU presidency to Hungary, for instance, which took 13 years to happen. Let's be frank, in 13 years, out of those 13 years, the situation has or had been quite clear for quite a long time. I just want to add that I think this is very important that you point out. And in a sense, this regime is a direct product of the European Union. And now without the European funding, with spiraling inflation, we can see that although Orban has some sort of a intellectual prowess that he wants to maintain and wants to sort of parade about, in terms of management, like actual realization and sustaining a system, their track record is incredibly bad. I know this sounds sort of just this like thrown aside bitter comment, but they are incredibly poor in managing systems and maintaining systems. They do drive every big public system into the ground sooner or later. The EU uh, funds were the main source of income. So there isn't really an economic alternative to EU membership. Russia is not going to finance this country. They are just about to defund the nuclear power plant that they promised to loan for and were supposed to build. But now, of course, because of the war and because of the restrictions, they cannot be official contractors, etc. So there really isn't somebody who is going to step in 
and provide a similar level of funding, external funding, just for the sake of the political project like the EU has. So I really wonder what kind of collapse or reworking it will bring. Yes, I think in the end nobody knows. Of course, the paradox is that uh, Hungarian society remains very pro-European in the sense that they appreciate many of the things that the EU has brought to them in a tangible kind of way, perhaps most importantly, uh, the freedom of movement, right? The ability to move to different countries, to reside in them, to work in them. Uh, those things remain very popular. I think it's true that for the Orban regime to be able to continue along the path it has set itself, staying in the EU is only rational as long as there are major benefits to it. Right When the EU becomes what it has become now, I think, a serious enforcer of norms and values, when it comes to this particular case, Orban might think that while he's basically more secure, his regime can be more secure without that kind of partnership that has been there for numerous years. But of course, this is a very risky policy. This is something that can easily lead to the destabilization of his regime because it has been much more dependent on the EU than they are willing to admit, right? This is the paradox, right? The EU doesn't like to admit that they have been helping Orban develop his regime. And Orban also doesn't like to at all emphasize that many of the things that happened in the country that look quite nice and that seem to look like improvement for the poor members of society, they basically came directly because of European funding and European support, right? So this is kind of a blind spot, if you wish. Indeed. And out of this, I think he, in many ways, is of course the question with such kind of political leaders, whether they start to believe their own lies, right? Something that may have sounded like a propaganda slogan to everybody who invented it a number of years ago. By now, they might be actually seriously believing that that is what is happening. And this is, of course, very dangerous, right? Because they basically might be following down a path of their own irrationality and their own kind of obsessions and their own uh, grievances, really. Just because this is such a great occasion to have brought in just a notion of sustainability, not as like a policy lozung, as we call it in Hungarian, so sort of, you know, beating around the bush with some topic generally, but sustainability in a very tangible version. We are talking now in the middle of summer. It's going to take a little while for this episode to get out. But when we are talking, Europe is scorching. Central Europe and Eastern Europe also are experiencing extreme weather cases. Hungary itself has been struggling with incredible droughts and other environmental problems. But I personally would put down water management as the greatest problem over here. Even the lakes we are so proud of, which we sort of substituted the sea with, or the Hungarian um, sort of self-narrative, substituted the sea with the Balaton, with the Platensee, they are running out of water. And there isn't really a good approach to this, at least right now present in Hungary. There are good solutions. There aren't really good policies. There are some smaller changes. But it does make me wonder whether such incredibly important factor, which we usually consider external, but it is very much built into these systems that they use up the resources and they don't really reproduce them. This is also the nature of, of this type of post-democratic, illiberal regime. They don't replace, they don't replenish, they don't really plan for a longer term, even though their main thing is that they want to stay in power forever. 
right? So that's kind of an internal contradiction for me. So thank you so much, Ferenc Lutzel, for joining me on the Kokorin podcast. Your article and many other articles in Eurozine are, of course, to be found on the website and will be linked in the show notes. And you are also one of the editors of our newest partner, The Review of Democracy. You've been listening to Gogari, the Eurozine podcast with historian, writer, and editor Ferenc Lutzel. This episode also comes with some bonus material in which we discuss integrating the matters of ecology with mainstream political theory and whether democracy even has the muscle mass to tackle civilizational crises as deep as climate change. This bonus conversation is available only to our supporters. Please visit patreon.com slash eurozine and support our work with as little as five euros a month or whatever you can afford. You can find Ferenc's articles on the transformation and transmutations of democracy and many more articles of his on the link in the show notes. You can also get our latest Eurozine anthology, The Legacy of Division, co-edited by Ferenc and published by the CEU Press, on the link in the description. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you will always know what's worth thinking about. Gokorin, the Eurozine podcast, is produced by Elias Neubloge. The production is supported by the Zeitstiftung. I've been editor-in-chief Reiko Kingapop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.